Good afternoon. My name is Rosanna, and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. I'm a little short on stature, so this mic's probably just set just right. <clears throat> um, just before I start, I want you to know just how sick I really still am. Uh, first of all, I really qualified to get here in the first place. You know, I was a great caretaker, um, martyr, um, controller, uh, self-righteous. I mean, I was a very good ethical person. And of course, the alcoholic in my life was, you know, the one, the one that was um, on the bad trail. But anyways, just to show you how sick I really am, I still have a quite a bit of vanity left in me. <clears throat> and uh, I like to consider myself a lady. <laughs> and I still have certain ideas about things like when you speak at conventions, you should wear a dress or a suit. Or when you fly in planes, when you go to churches, things like that. I have a little bit of old-fashionedness in, in me. But my God has a sense of humor. And first of all, in trying to, another sickness, <clears throat> trying to prove a point to my husband that I really could pack all my clothes in one little black leather bag that we bought in Mexico, I forgot the one piece, like my top, that allowed me three different choices of outfits, which were either a dress or a suit. So here I am today in pants, which is a real rarity to me, and I brought this just for cool comfort in case it was cool tomorrow. So here I am, and this is a real test of my flexibility and my uh, strong beliefs in what, how I should be. So uh, it's funny, uh, I have a really, really good friend in Al-Anon, and she always tests me, and she always says, is there a little pride behind that? And when she first said it, I, I was like pissed right off at her, like her and I didn't get along, eh? And um, now she's become one of my best friends, because she always makes me look at myself, and, um, and I have to say, I've worked on a lot of my defects, and a lot of the other ones are much improved, but pride seems to keep getting in there. And now I'm passing that on to my sponsees, and she kind of gets, this one sponsee that I'm working with right now, she gets kind of insulted, like, oh, pride, I can't even see that. And even when I give her an example about myself, which I have many. So anyway, I'll get on with my story, but I needed you to know that I really do qualify to be here. I've earned it well throughout my life. I'm thirsty. It's hot up here, even if it's cold in the rest of the place. No, it's cold. It's not cold. It's comfortable. And I'm also in that time of life when we get the, <clears throat> some call them blonde moments, blushing moments, or flushing moments, but I have flushes that have nothing to do with the weather outside. And so uh, I guess I must be having one of them because I'm hot and has nothing to do with sex. And uh, anyway, I was born, John referred that a lot of people from Saskatchewan, I was born in a small Saskatchewan town called Cabri. And I was born on a farm and there was five children of which I was the oldest. And I was not born into an alcoholic family. Um, however, uh, once I arrived at Al-Anon, I couldn't understand why I kept identifying with all these adult children of alcoholics. And 
shaking down my family tree. Uh, my mother was an adult child of an alcoholic. And so, although there was no alcohol in her house, everything else felt the same. There was nothing to explain the anger and the, my mother was a rageaholic. So I spent a lot of my life being really angry at her. And I was very, sh <laughs> those who know me now will find this hard to believe, but I was very shy and reserved when I was young. And it seemed like on the farm, as the oldest child, I was expected to always do everything right and set the example. And uh, what probably started me really into my really good caretaking and um, controller and martyr role was my mom had a nervous breakdown when I was in about grade six. And my dad came to me and he says, you know, your mom, she had to go away. <coughs> to what then was like to Moostra, like a mental asylum. And, and uh, he says, now you're the oldest, and so I want you to help me to help the other kids, you know, believe that, there's, that mother loves them and, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong. So I have to tell you, I obviously did a really good job of that. I mean, I did a really good job. My brothers and sisters don't even really remember those events. But I never let that role go, even though my mom came back a short while, you know, a few months later. And I didn't believe it. I thought there was something, there was something wrong with us or whatever, that my mother could never be happy. So, um, and I didn't realize until once I was talking to a, a new member after Elanon, that I kept that parent role even though my mother returned. And we moved to Saskatoon because my mom hated that gossipy little town where nobody minds their own business. And she was always so negative. That was another thing I didn't like about her. And she was also very negative about sex. So, like, you know, I came to Elanon with a lot of really funny ideas um, and set myself up for a lot of things. But anyways, when I was uh, this new member one day, I went for coffee after a meeting and she was just talking about, you know, her biggest anger was her some sibling that was always telling her what to do and then she was expressing how it felt and all this stuff. And while she was talking, it was like, oh, I couldn't believe it. I realized, and I, I mean by this time I'm like 35 or something, <laughs> that I was still doing that to my brothers and sisters uh, out of love and, and believing that I had some special insight that nobody else had. I mean, talk about self-righteous. I had no confidence in myself in certain ways, and then other areas I seemed I think I was a God that, uh, you, you know, had something special. And sure, I had something special, but they didn't need to have all my input on every major thing in their life. And um, that was a real awakening for me. And so for those of you who may be newcomers, I hope today all I pray for is that I say something that might help you to understand yourself in this process to recovery because newcomers are the blood to our program and I have learned so much from newcomers and new members. I, I love the keenness and the, and the honesty and the emotion, the real emotions that they're expressing. Because some of us who, who get around, uh, John touched on complacency, once in a while complacency sets in. And I, I, it's been a long time since I lived with active drinking. And sometimes I forget what it's like. So I really need 
you newcomers are just so special to me along with the people that have been in the program who have done the work before me. Anyways, on with my childhood. Once in a while I like to throw in something that I've learned and otherwise I might forget it later. Uh, when I moved to Saskatoon, I was in grade 7. Um, did the mic just go off? No? Or, anyway, it sounds different to me, but maybe not. Um, when, anyways, when we moved to Saskatoon, is, is it gone? Oh, okay. I'll, I'll continue. Tell me if you can't hear me. But um, when I moved to Saskatoon, I, I was, like I said, I was really shy. I was very withdrawn. And I had a lot of anger about uh, always having to be perfect. And so I took on a new role. I thought I can be a person, you know, a different person. I'm going to be this more carefree person. And so my friends thought Rosanna was a very prissy kind of name and they thought they should call me Rocky. And so I, had a, I, I got a really nice group of friends right off. Oh, here we are. And um, so these friends called me Rocky. And so I tried to be something that was a bit more light because I was a very serious person then. But I also felt in our family it was kind of you were seen and not heard, so my family didn't really want to hear how I felt about things. In uh, high school, I got involved with a group called Sing Out Saskatoon, and the, the main purpose of that group was to learn to be positive about life, and, and it was called the Upless People Movement, if anybody knows about it. And what it did for me is told me that each of us have something valuable to say, and I had so much in me that I wanted to get out. And from kind of that point on, I went from this person who didn't express myself on most topics that I absolutely needed to be heard. And that need went to the other direction. Anyways, um, not long after that, I um, met what turned out to be my first husband. And he was from the small town that I had grown up with growing up in and we still went back there in the summers because my parents still owned the farm and just let me get another drink it's hot up here um, he was really exciting like I still I still struggled a lot with trying to be a little spontaneous and fun and that but I mean he was exciting like we went out and visited Don Coppers and Grasky's that's where we drank and all these things and that are kind of funny, but of course those are just your, um, your oil derricks. And we did a lot of crazy things, and that was so much fun. And you know, once in a while I talked to friends who had boyfriends that actually respected them, came on time, you know, <laughs> were nice to them. And it's not that my, my then boyfriend wasn't nice to me, but he always had a car full of buddies. It was me and the guys, and it wasn't, you know, he might be hours, a half a day late, whatever, just because he got partying on the way or whatever. And I just accepted that as well, even though it wasn't normal in my family, I just thought, well, this is fun, like, you know, my place is kind of boring. So, anyways, we got married, and I have to say, again, now this, you have to understand to really get me, is that I am a very pure person, and um, we got married, of course we loved each other, but we got married because I was so nervous having sex out of marriage and not living, and I couldn't live together, we had to get married. So I got married at 19, and he, I was just finishing my nursing training, and he was in his second year of um, 
University in Saskatoon. And so a lot of my issues became part of our pattern. It wasn't just my husband's drinking. And at first we had a lot of fun. I liked the drinking as much as he did. I just, I didn't like getting sick the next day. So as we started to have children, I kind of, you know, I'd have a drink here and there, but it, you know, I couldn't get up and look after them in the morning. I, I got hangovers and I didn't feel very good. And, you know, I just couldn't understand how people managed to get up and start drinking first thing in the morning. But anyways, we carried on and, and uh, we had three children, which are all young adults today, two, two boys and a girl. And um, pretty soon uh, the, the drinking took on where it wasn't, uh, we didn't just go to parties anymore. All of a sudden he didn't like socializing. Uh, he didn't like talking. He stuttered. He, he, he couldn't answer the phone. He couldn't answer the door. He still went to work and he never drank at work. But somehow, pretty soon, I was answering the door, answering the phone, paying the bills, running the kids here and there, working also full-time. And I just kept taking on one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. And of course, that's when my martyr role really expanded, because people would say, well, how can you do it? Well, you know, you just keep on trucking. And, you know, it's like it worked to get things done, but it didn't work to make me feel good on the inside. And I... I learned to thrive on crisis. So um, out of that, I became very lonely. My husband was, a, besides drinking heavily, he was a workaholic. So if he wasn't drinking, he was working. And which case meant he was never home. Uh, in the later years, he didn't drink out at parties and stuff. He just drank at home vodka and hit it all over the house and passed out. And he forced me pretty well to take another job because he didn't really like the response. I was a nurse in ICU and uh, it was my job of my life. I loved it. And uh, he didn't like the responsibility of having to drive the kids to the sports on the weekends that I worked. And uh, so I changed jobs and um, with a bit of a mm, resentment. Uh, <laughs> It was in the hospital and recovery room in a um, ward where I mean we could work days and most weekends off. Anyways, um, we went to some counseling over that because just before I was to assume this job, I realized that I wasn't doing it for the right reasons. That I just kind of, I never lost it in my life, but I just kind of, I just kind of lost it for a day and I went back to the unit manager that I was working with and I said like, I don't know if I can, can I still have my job back? I don't know if I can do this because I don't really want to go. I'm going because I feel I have to. So she said, well, I think you need to talk to the psychologist at, you know, at the hospital. So she got me right in and I went down and talked to them and they said, well, you know, it, it is your choice. You, you, your, your boss said you can have either one back and she said, maybe just talk to your husband and if you want, you can come here for counseling. So. That night I talked to my husband and I decided, well, really in the best interest of my family, it probably was better that I went ahead. However, he did agree to go to counseling. Now, I have to tell you, we got a certificate saying that we were the perfect couple going to that counseling when we graduated. And nothing changed in our marriage. I was there really trying to be honest because by this time I knew something was really not right. And he went to the 
that therapy every week and said, Rosanna is a wonderful person. And he just, he couldn't, shit couldn't have melted in, or would have melted in his mouth. And then we'd get in the car on the way home, he'd pick up a bottle, curse and swear, and tell him, fucking asshole, what a wife you are, and all this stuff, and I'm sitting there. Meanwhile, I still kept going to these classes, and, and I was trying to sit or these, you know, sessions. But anyway, this is just an example of how, how my life was so at opposite of each other. And, and we really did get the certificate. I've got it put away someday just so, you know, I can smile every once in a while and see how much. Later, he admitted how he, you know, he had, he, he, was, he knew he wasn't being honest there, but that's just what he had to do in a, in a few moments when he was in AA. And um, anyways, so our life went on. And then we had a big, what became a real, I think a turning point in, for sure in our marriage was um, my husband was charged with sexually abusing my daughter. And um, that was probably the worst day of my whole life. Um, they phoned me at work and I was in a new job because I left the hospital because our life was falling apart so fast I needed a job that gave me more flexibility so I left the hospital with all the, the good benefits and everything and worked in the private and I was head nurse in a clinic and I couldn't leave and they said we need to talk to you right away and we're coming to talk to you right at your workplace and it's like I said by this time my daughter was acting up a bit and I said oh did she do something and they said well not really but we need to talk to you about her and so um, I got the x-ray technician to cover me while I went into one of the offices at work and they told me and I have to say now this is where you really can see my sickness I didn't leave this man at this place it's not that I didn't believe it I believe that I loved him so much and um, I believed he didn't know what he was doing because of the alcohol because sometimes my daughter had always had a sleeping problem and she used to sneak into bed at night with us and finally you know when she got older I, I used to take her back and then she got older and she learned to just go around to his side of the bed because he was a deep sleeper and and then I'd wake up in the morning and find her there so of course as she was getting older I wouldn't allow her to do that and I was a light sleeper so I believed when I was doing these shift works and that that um, I thought he was just drunk and he didn't know what he was doing. Anyway, we won't go into that too much, but I, today I would make different decisions. In those days, I thought my job was to keep my family together. And I'll have you know that that night I went out to a school concert with all three of my kids and continued on as if nothing had happened. And in the counseling that we were forced to take, because he wasn't charged, as, because they believed that I could... Once I knew, I would, I, she was safe, and uh, we, I had already changed jobs, so I no longer work nights. And um, they also, in this counseling, this is one of my um, resentments that I've now worked through, but uh, our counselor used to work for ADAC, and there are very good counselors with ADAC, but she was one of the ones that thought there were some people that could drink and my husband was one of these and she had great sympathy with him and she would cry over I mean it was just revolting for me and my daughter I wasn't allowed to talk to any of my friends about the abuse um, 
And whenever I brought in anything to do with alcohol, she said I was off topic. The only thing that she did point out to me which was correct was that I, why did I seem to feel that I had to fix everything in our family? Although I allowed my children to be independent in other ways, I believed that they just couldn't get along without me. And uh, that was one insight that I got out of that counseling that we were, had to take uh, legally. Anyway, my daughter, this uh, therapist, never uh, supported my daughter either. She just supported my husband. So finally, after about a year and a half of this, my daughter refused to go anymore. And they, they discharged us again, and we just had to do this apology session with our kids, and we were done. Nothing had changed in our marriage. Except that he did admit funny in there that he didn't know what he was doing and that how could it make any difference if she was sleeping and she didn't know what was happening. So, anyways, we'll get on from there. Um, that really affected our sex life, needless to say. And... Uh, I kept on in this family trying to make it work and after that my daughter acted up and she got into drugs, alcohol, skipping school, trouble with the police. So we basically balanced one was always in crisis and I was very used to crisis so I just kind of knew what my job was. I got into uh, an affair and this is where uh, something changed. I got into the fair innocently with a friend. I had to go to about a, uh, a friend who was ill and I had met this guy at a wedding that my husband hadn't went to and we had had fun dancing. It was in Vancouver but this was a year or so later and, and then he called me up to let me know that my, my best friend in Vancouver, her husband, had taken really ill and, and he was going to university and I was going to university because I knew that I needed to do something because I didn't know how long this marriage would last. So I was working full-time and, and um, having the household and going to university part-time. So I just met him for coffee to talk about this. And anyways, we got into affair. And I have to say, in my marriage, I, I was in what would be called two affairs. One was very early on in the marriage. And the first one never involved any sex. The sex, second one did, but I have to say, most people believe that, that everything is always about sex. I mean, sex was such a thing in our, our marriage that it was not about sex. It was that I was so lonely. I just needed somebody who was fun and somebody who listened to me, and I was just so lonely. But one night after coming away from coffee with this fellow, I can still clearly remember driving down 16th Avenue in Saskatoon past the Crossroads Hotel, and I thought, Rosanna, what the hell are you doing? Like, here you are, the pure, ethical, person that you think you are and you're going against everything you believe and, and and I'm barely able to support my family emotionally because I'm just a human doing and so the next day I don't even know how I knew about Al-Anon I guess because I was a nurse I must have known at some level so the next day I phoned in my break I phoned the Al-Anon 24-hour number I think I got AA, they put me on down and on, and they told me of the meeting that was closest to me, which happened to be either that night or the next night, and I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. 
I've only ever stopped once for a few months just shortly after that. My husband, although I really kept, you know, was a person to try and keep the family together at the same time, I was a little bit of a rebel. I, I like to be independent and do my own thing. And he, I let him know what I was doing, not in a flaunting way, but I didn't keep it a secret like some people have to. And so our weeks would be pretty miserable. He knew he couldn't make me not go, but things would be bad. I'd go to my meetings and they'd be just getting back normal. And I only went once a week at that point because that was all I could manage. And, uh, and then next week I'd go to Alan and it would start all over again. Um, and so finally, I had to go into the hospital just a couple months later and uh, have some surgery. And it was elective surgery, which I really needed. And uh, our mortgage was due to be signed, and so he refused to sign it. And he said, if I put Ellen on, he would sign it, which I needed to get that done because I was on my way into the hospital. And uh, he would sign it, but if, I, if he started drinking again, I could go back to Elanon. Well, how do you know? I think I only stopped for about <laughs> three months or something. And I was back in Elanon. I've never left. Um, Elanon has been, for me, just, um, it's changed my whole life. It's changed my whole being. And I can't say that I was grateful when I went to Elanon. When I went there, you have to understand, I thought I was a person that could cope with just about anything in the world. And I just needed just a couple of little tips. Just a couple. Because I, I almost had it managed, but I couldn't quite get on top of it. And so, you know, there they said, you know, you're here for yourself. And it's like, yeah, okay, but get on with it. Tell me what I have to do. And, you know, people talked about, um, you know, studying the 12 steps and how good they were felt, you know, worked for them, and so I went home, read the, t like I'm a, an intellectual person, or a person in my head, so I'm, and I, anything I set my mind to, I can do, so I went home, read those 12 steps, and thought, Jesus, they didn't do any goddamn thing for me, and nothing's changed, or couldn't see any bolts of lightning or anything, and helped me nothing to do with my decision, but I kept going, because I saw hope in those rooms, I thought they were a little weird, because the, the Elanons, like, I wasn't touchy-feely huggy either. Like in our family, the only person that hugged me was my grandma. My mom didn't. We didn't get kisses, hugs, or whatever. I had a, a family that I knew my, my parents were always there for me, but I was continuously upset at my mom because she was always raging and embarrassing me with my friends. So I knew that they were always there for me because they supported me, they went to any functions that I did, all those things, and I guess that's why I felt as a parent that that was my duty and why I stayed with my husband even after the sexual abuse. I thought, a parent, I have to stay there, I have to do what I'm doing, and this is my promise to, you know, when I got married. Anyways, and Alan and I stayed because I seen the hope there, even though they were a little weird. And talking about these emotions, that was, that was a little weird, you know, because I didn't have too much of a range. I, I had learned to be relatively, I was never flat because I'm always excitable just like I am now. I'm not a flat person for sure, but I, there was many emotions that I didn't have and anger was certainly one I didn't allow myself. Um, but in Elanon, I, I seen the hope in the rooms and I watched the people that had problems worse than me. 
And like they say, you know, if you don't think your problem is bad enough, go and come back when you are. And, you know, that's what happened to me when I took those couple of months that I promised my husband. When I came back, things were worse. You know, it is a progressive disease. Um, like I said, I was very much into survival and just a human doing. I just did not know how to be. I had to be busy to feel okay about myself. I had to be doing things for other people to feel good about myself. Um, the first thing, I had a real problem with God too, so I have to let you know, I just, like the God thing was a real barrier for me, which meant I was, you know, a slow learner in the program. And for those of you, if you're not getting it right away, there is hope. I, I'm an example, there is hope. You know, you don't have to get it right away. There's no rate that you have to get it. I really couldn't get the difference uh, between, to me, spirituality and religion were the same thing. And I, I, I go, I was searching constantly. Like, I go and ask people. I go to A, a function. I say, like, what's the difference? I, I can't get it. You know, so it wasn't that I wasn't looking, but I just couldn't get it. And um, I found at first the slogans in the serenity prayer were what really helped me because I had no boundaries and I didn't know what was my business or anybody else's and I always got involved in other people's business, especially my families and friends who perhaps didn't want it or need it. And um, so the serenity prayer helped me to figure out if it was my business in the first place. And the slogans, because I complicated my life so much, the slogans helped me to uh, get, make it simple. You know, keep my life simple. Keep first things first. Keep it simple. One day at a time. And I learned about the three C's. You can't control it, can't cure it, and can't... And now I can't think of it. Anyways, it doesn't matter, but they helped me a lot realizing that I, I didn't cause it. That was the other one. I learned to redefine all my words that I'd learned in my life. Uh, I, some people come to Al-Anon and they're depressed and they sit in their house and they can't get motivated, they can't get dressed or whatever else, they clean their house all day. I wasn't any of those. I was one of the overdoers outside of there. I was a busy person. And I, I believed so much, like when I talked about when I got into this youth group, believing in positive, I was so positive that I had double rose glasses on, like, you know, the white picket fence, I was even more, more unrealistic than that, like, I just believed that if I tried hard enough, long enough, I could get there. I just, so, I, that's why, until I got the spiritual aspect of this program, I, I did see the hope, and I did learn something. But at that point, which is close to around three years in the program, is when I got it. And, and it was over something really simple. One day, we were going to an Al-Anon Stampede breakfast, and I had asked my husband and my son if they wanted to come. My husband used to come in and out of AA periodically. And um, they were going to come. Just the youngest one was hang doing things with us at that point. And, uh, and then somehow, I just had a feeling they were going to cancel, and they didn't. I, and I thought, like, I was always a navigator in our family. But for some reason that day, a, a huge fear took over that I wasn't going to find this picnic ground where everybody was. Now, why that was, I don't know, because I never had a problem reading maps or anything. So, anyways, I just remember something coming over me. It's like, okay, Roseanne, you know, let's just make a plan. Because in one of our books, it talks about plans A, B, and C. 
And if A doesn't work out, have plan B and have plan C. So I thought, you know, if I don't find them, I packed a thermos of, of coffee, I took a picnic blanket, and it was a potluck, so I had my little potluck item. And, um, and I took a couple of books, and I was just calm as anything. And I drove right up there, drove right to the right spot, walked to the right picnic, you know, circle, first thing. And, and that was the first moment that I, you know, I can honestly say of surrender that I, I was conscious of. Definitely my higher power was working in my life. I believe that was why even the day that I made the first phone call, that was my higher power. I just didn't recognize it. Early in my program I had, I went to a very good Al-Anon meeting and one of the ladies there later became my sponsor. And one of the biggest things, even like I said, even when I couldn't get the spiritual aspect, couldn't get some of the, anything that had God in it, any of the slogans of the serenity prayer, I never said nothing with God in it except the serenity prayer, because to me that wasn't religious. I heard it before I got here. So, um, anyways, I, uh, motives, motives is what, look at your motives, this person always said, I mean, it was so, so often it's just like, so finally it got to me as soon as I was going to say something or I was going to do something, it's like, okay, what is my motive? And even though I thought I was a really honest person, often I would realize, if I thought about this, that I was doing, even though it was a nice or a good gesture that I was going to do, it was to get somebody to like me. It was to get somebody to say, you're a good person, or something like that, or to get some kind of recognition. And so that really helped me in starting to look at why I did what I did. Um, when I did my first um, steps, study, did my first 12 steps, uh, work twos, four and five, I had a real fear of abandonment and a fear of failure. The, the, I remember thinking I would never get over the fear of abandonment. It, it seemed, um, I just did lots of praying about it, and you know, a few years, a few years ago, all of a sudden realized when I was doing another step study that it, it just wasn't there anymore. There was no day that it disappeared, but as my higher power has given me more trust and belief and confidence in myself, um, and I don't have to do things to impress other people, but just do them because I feel it's right or it's something I want to do, I no longer need to feel so worried that those close to me are going to leave me. And I'm sure that had to do with my mom um, being, you know, going to that mental asylum twice, actually. But, um, and so I have worked through that. And um, uh, I got involved in service. And I have to say, Alateens is what, one of the things that really helped me to make my program a little simpler. Elatines, um, and I know there were some young ladies over there that I talked to last night and I asked them if they were an Elatine and they weren't sure what it was and we finally discovered they weren't in it, but I said you do qualify. Uh, because all you have to be is between 12 and 21 and uh, they're just younger members of Al-Anon. But you know, they, I learned so much from them because they can have fun, they're so spontaneous, they make things so simple. And they'll ask questions that are just so direct and I'll be going in some complex explanation of something and it's just like they'll just say one word and it's like, oh, you know. So I learned so much from them. I learned a lot being a group rep. And early on in my 
when I just became a group rep, I was at a Roundup in Airdrie, and I still remember to this day, this, there was a male Elanon person speaking there, and his name was Bob, and he was from California. And he said, you know, he was, he's always excited about service, because service in the program, because we're an honest program, and if you trust your other members to be honest, that is where you learn to work on your own defects and shortcomings because they will bring them to your attention <laughs> in hopefully a loving manner. But you know, I have to say in, in a lot of my service work, some things have been brought to me in loving manners, some things haven't. But as I've learned to have more confidence in myself, I can also have compassion and understanding for where other people are coming from and see there's very many other opinions. So even something that may be brought to me in not so positive a manner, I can handle it these days and I can say it's not, I, I can tell myself it's not personal. And um, anyway, uh, I've just learned not taking things personal has helped a lot. And why do, do I take things personal? Pride. Pride. I didn't even think pride was an issue with me. It wasn't on my first couple of step studies. I didn't think pride was a problem that I had. It's the basis. Besides fear, pride is the other basis of most of my problems. And, and envy, like my adult children, since I, since I uh, left the marriage, um, some of them have, they slowly come around, but uh, they have initially when I got married uh, my daughter kind of stopped talking to me and not just because of the marriage but because she figured I started to change so they have to blame it on something it can't be me changing so I wasn't as enabling and by this time she was in drugs and alcohol or drugs mostly um, and uh, so because I wouldn't enable her it had to be my husband who was making me not give her money and not letting me, her, me talk to her on the phone for long periods of time and when she lived in Vancouver and so um, you know and, and in the program envy I had so much envy to other Eleanor members whose kids you know came home and had you know wanted to you know just talk to them or whatever because I had that relationship once and it isn't there anymore however it slowly come around with my uh, youngest son who who probably had the most uh, all my kids were in Elateen for either tiny bits of time or whatever but my youngest son, I guess he was around for a bit more of the recovery. And so he, he's probably the most balanced of my kids. And so he's a, a positive figure in my life. And my other son, he's busy practicing <laughs> in Red Deer as a Labatt beer salesman. And um, he's very busy. Like if you ever wonder if you pass anything on to your kids, oh, like somebody was mentioning that today, or maybe it was Linda last night. It's like the busyness that I did. Like I could, I could have three, four meetings in one evening from 6:30 or 7 till when I hit the bed and come home and work on another project till two and get up at six and do it all over again. And so um, Lyle, my oldest son, is just. Uh, He's taken me and my ex-husband, and if you can put the worst combination of busy, there he is, and it, it just makes me cringe. In fact, one day, even though he's very conscious of not wanting to be an alcoholic, and he's told me he's went on the wagon at least once, I mean, 
I've never had to go in the wagon, so um, that's kind of interesting, but um, most times you have some kind of a problem if you think you have to try going on the wagon. Uh, anyways, and then one day he also said to me, I said, well, you know, I sometimes I worry because you're, you're driving and you've been, you know, late in Calgary and you have to go back to Red Deer, and, and he, says, he says, oh, I just take some of those, you know, keep you awake pills. I was like, oh, good. And so anyways, I just prayed a little more. Thank God I learned detachment. That was one of the earlier things that I learned in Al-Anon, to detach with love. At first, I just detached. <laughs> People in Al-Anon, I said, I can't understand why I detach. I hate this guy. I love him, but I hate him, my, my spouse. And they said, well, just detach at first. And so I detached. And then finally, I was able to do it with love. And now, and, and I did see, even in those early times, changes in my kids, because every year he crashed at Christmas. And so at Christmas, our house would be falling apart. So this one Christmas, I just was finally got it about detachment's love. And so, you know, I'd just leave him a note if he was passed out or whatever, and just say, the kids and I are here. If you want to come and join us, fine. Whatever. And I just acted like he was a normal person. I, can't, I don't want to be insulting, but actually, I, I, by this time, I'd taken some classes because of my daughter about being, um, you know, parenting with love and stuff like this. So I kind of treated it the same as my kids, and I thought, well, if the oldest one was out, that's what I would do. So I just left a note to whoever wasn't there. And, and you know, I could really see, even in my daughter at that time, that when I wasn't all emotionally charged, she wasn't either. Just the whole family was calmer that Christmas. So it really does make a difference. Um, to kind of move ahead, I guess I'm running out of time. I must, usually I don't dwell so much on the past, but I guess that must have been where I was today. Um, in the last year, I've really struggled. I mean, I've spent a lot of years working my program. I've been very active in Al-Anon, and I have a very good sponsor. Um, and... Uh, I was really struggling again, and, and my program, I was practicing it, like not only the steps, the traditions, I've been really learning about the conce concepts and how to put them to practice in my regular life, and, but there was something, and if this was me, I learned to work with respect and loving and compassion in relationships all around me. The person that I still had work to do with was me. And me, now, um, somehow I decided, and, and John and I got, we, we met about 10 years ago, right after I split up with my husband. My husband still thinks that I, we, I had an affair, but really I, I met him about five days later. I just, um, at a dance, because I love dancing, and I went to this dance, and I met John that night, but um, nothing happened for a while, but it, I did meet him right away. And he just kept showing, like we ran into each other at meetings, we ran into, I was living at my girlfriend's when I left my marriage. Um, I ran into him at Dairy Queen, like all these places that like, here we're in a big city of Calgary and we just kept running into each other. and. Finally, it seemed like it was meant to be, but when we did finally go out for coffee, I said, just so you know, I'm some kind of a sexual misfit, and so don't have any of those kind of expectations. We're just, you know, we'll just do friends, coffee, and all this stuff. And so that's how we started. And you know what? 
I found out sexually I was just fine. <laughs> and I have to share that with some people because, yeah, we need to know that there's abuse, but we need to know that sometimes it was never about me. My husband had a sexual, my first husband had a sexual addiction from day one. It later reflected in a different way, but do you know I went to sexual therapy within the first few months of my marriage, and I stayed in that marriage for 22 years because I believed all those years there was something wrong with me there, besides other aspects of my life. I share that only because I was excited to find out that I'm, I'm a normal person, and I can be a normal person in many ways. Um, in John's and my marriage, some people say, well, you know, what's the difference in this marriage now? And, and I have to say that the difference is, is how I grew up is you never, it was always somebody else's problem, like, you know, the finger, you know, pointing this way and there's three pointing back to you. It was, it was always somebody else's problem. In the program, because we were both, excuse me, in the program, the first thing we both do as soon as something arises, an issue, is look at ourselves first. And I look at it and say, is this my thing or isn't it? It's real simple. Use the serenity prayer. If it's not my thing, then let him keep whatever it is and have his thing. And John always says, he didn't talk about it today, but he likes to go into his cave and figure things out. So I let him go to his cave and come around when he's ready. If it's my thing, then own up to it. If I just had a bad day at work, say, sorry, hon. Like, it's nothing to do with you. I had a bad day at work. But I don't have to take it out on him or pretend it's somebody else's, even somebody at work's problem. It was my problem. And so to me, that's the biggest difference in our relationship is we're both willing to be accountable for ourselves. In the last year, I was alluding that I had really realized there was a problem with me. And what I realized, I, I finally, I mean, I hit a bottom in this program, just a spiritual bottom, that I felt so burned out on the inside and yet so, my life, there was, it was so good. And I was so grateful for all the good in it, but I was so burned out on the inside. It didn't make sense. They were in opposition to each other. So I asked my sponsor, and I know this is how it's recommended to do, but, you know, I didn't really talk about this too much today, but, you know, I'm kind of a rebel, too, and I don't exactly do things how it's recommended, even though we don't give advice. We do have recommendations in Elanon. It took me three years to get a sponsor. I never used the phone list at first because somebody, it was either a Friday night and they were probably socializing with friends, Sunday was family day, you know, it was either two early kids were up and they're putting to bed, you know, I had all these excuses. So I didn't do the things that are recommended early on, I always had to do it by the school of hard knocks. I went in many study groups and I've worked with my sponsor in many ways, but I had never done step one to step twelve with my sponsor. So this time, I did it, and I really did it about me, the part that was hurting. And what I realized, I talked about wearing the double pink glasses. Well, I mean, mine are almost fuchsia, you know, because I was so positive, so unrealistic, that I couldn't, I still, there was parts of, of my workplace in that that I wasn't, seeing the reality of it. I just didn't allow it. And, um, and so I replaced, and before I could get myself out of the 
if workaholism might have always been lurking there. Uh, but I, I needed, I was a parent, I, my husband was busy out drinking or, or, or working, so I, I was responsible for my kids. But suddenly, my husband and I had an equal relationship. He didn't need me. <laughs> need in quotations. And so I realized that I just kept working. And it's not that we didn't have a good relationship. It was, nothing, it was really nothing to do with them. I, I didn't think, oh, I, if I just work another half an hour and get this. But my half an hour, because I'm a perfectionist, over-responsible, uh, needed to accomplish, I would half an hour turn into three. I didn't phone home and tell. And John is the major cook in our house. I didn't tell you. Like, you know, first, they say first time for love, second time for money. It was me, first time for love, second time love, and a cook. And uh, I don't need to cook much anymore. And so John was making these lovely meals, and I wasn't showing up, and sometimes not even calling him. So anyways, I really worked through that this summer and looked at, you know, my own isms and, and how to work on that. And in trying to shorten this so I can finish in a few minutes, it's, it's I learned that I need to, I learned to know me, I learned to value me, but I wasn't valuing, I wasn't doing the meditation. I wasn't valuing my quiet time. And so I let every other thing take over that and I was becoming a bit spiritually bankrupt just on the inside. And so um, I believe also that that was not a coincidence, that me working through that was very timely for when John was diagnosed with his cancer. Now, although I'm a nurse, that should make that very easy. But our family has longevity. People die when they're over 90. Nobody is sick. Nobody has motor vehicle accidents and has been killed or had serious uh, repercussions. I have not had to deal with illness in my close family. Um, so all of this prepared me to be able to have some skills when John was diagnosed in how to help him. Because normally my caretaker self would have been over and taking over him. Well, like I said, John has his own the program has taught me to have respect for him. He has to deal with this in his own way. And my way would be to go and hug him and cuddle and hang all over him while you, told, you hear tonight what he, what he says. And, and I mean, that isn't what he wants. And so to find a way to be supportive to him, respectful, and show my love, and be recognizing my own... Um, pain with that. It has been such a growing experience. My, I've shared my Elman group has been such a, a support there. Um, friends that I just didn't know I had. And I used to always be disappointed in my friends before Elanon. And I didn't know why. But I, I realize now that we were talking in our meeting this morning that sometimes even the friends that are just close acquaintances now, or I mean, just people that pass by my life, they still treat me with a different kind of respect than before because I think it's because I'm honest about where I'm at at a time. Not that I pour out my troubles to everybody, but there's just a different level of honesty there. And so I've just been, we've been overwhelmed with the support that we've got with this. And so um, I just have so much gratitude. And last week when we were in Mexico, 
I was really, uh, and I have to tell you, you know, once in a while you need to hear his and her version. And I'll just give you one. And John, when we went to go to Mexico there, we first thought we, our, the doctors kept telling us after his first surgery, you better go because it was a fast-growing cancer. You don't know what's going to happen. And so go and have a holiday. But John says, no, I want to wait till after so I have something to look forward to. So I respected that. And then he had his second surgery, and they took 38 lymph nodes out, all of which came back normal, and that was on um, January 21st. And uh, they were going to start radiation right away. And then they suddenly said, well, we're not going to start till four to six weeks. Now I says to John, I says, great, we can go on vacation. Now there, there was a little gap, assumption number one in me, he wanted to go too. He didn't say he didn't want to go. So we're talking, I said, well, phone the cancer clinic and see if you can change it. One appointment in the middle of February, I said, see if you can change it. And, you know, he didn't seem to really be getting on that like I thought he should, <coughs> even though he was home all day, and um, in my understanding. And uh, then I said, uh, so this was Thursday when he found out the diagnosis that everything, that, he, that they weren't going to do the radi uh, radiation right away. And on Friday night, I said, okay, like as soon as I get home from Ringette on Saturday morning, like, we'll start phoning around the airlines, get our, our tickets booked, and, and I've figured out in here I've got three weeks we can book. And uh, in my work, because I manage two clinics, so I have a little bit to work around. And so, um, anyways, we're, you know, I come home from Ringette, we're both making the phone calls, and he's saying, you know, uh, the, the flights are too expensive, uh, you know, we're not getting this, and me being the positive keener, I'm in there, I phone around, and I, I get on the line, and I says, I got somebody $300 less, like, confirm? And he says, well, I don't know if we have the money. Like, what do you mean? We've got a whole vacation allowance. We've, we've, he puts money in every month except until he started a new UI. So he's not putting any more money in, and we were going to go in April anymore. We have no more money now, or have no less money than we will April. Like, what are we talking about? So I hangs up from this lady, and I'm raging. It's like, what is your problem? I try to get this flight on the phone, and we don't have it. And so, you know, I went downstairs, washing clothes, washing clothes, you know, and coming up, and it's like, duh, he doesn't want to go. He never said that. I didn't. And so I went up, you don't want to go, do you? And he looked at me. He said, well, no, I don't have money. I said, it's not about the money. The money is not going to be any different now than then. It's not, it's not about that. We've all, and we had already paid for our timeshare, so we just had to pay for our flights. And I said, it's not about the money. And then I just walked away. I thought, his thing. Let him deal with it. And then he came back sometime later, and there we went. But I only say that again for a show of how we think we're communicating. And him and I do that regular on different things. And we both think we both talked. But we... Uh, <laughs> We're off in different directions and how we assimilate that same conversation. So anyways, in Mexico, I'm enjoying myself. I was really burned out. I, I didn't talk about my job because I ran out of time, but my job in the last couple of years, I've taken increased responsibility and it really took it after a couple of years and then this on top of it really took its toll and I was burned out. I had to go. I was crying. I spent one whole day at work about a week before we went crying because the cancer clinic changed an appointment on him. 
and it screwed my schedule up so much. Do they know how I have to phone two bloody clinics, change six nurses around just so I can change my, my schedule again? Da, 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 da. And, and I cried for a whole day at work. Nobody knew what to do with me. But I just knew it wasn't that I wasn't, it was nothing to do with the cancer. I'd accepted that. It was me. I just needed a break. So we went away, we had the break, and the last week I had to come back and teach a class on the Saturday when we got home, and so I, I started to get depressed on the Sunday night. And I never get depressed, because I'm a happy person, right? A positive person. And I couldn't sleep all night, most of the night. So I got up the next morning, and my sponsor, when we had finished doing this 12-step study with her, she gave me this book on contentment. I had looked a little bit at it. But I got up and read it the next morning and it more or less said, so list 10 good things in your life right now. Very basic. I listed 10. I could list 20 like that. And then I turned myself around for the week and remembered I have choices. I have things. I have much good in my life. And so I just want to end today thanking you for letting me come here and share because this program has given me a life it's given me skills to deal with life on life's terms. I like, I seem to have a tendency not to live in the present. I'm not one who dwells on the past, but I want things good for the future. And so, um, I'm going to read you a little quote when I was reading about contentment, which is really a part of the serenity this week. It just said, and I've read it over every day for two weeks, just reminding myself, contentment is a state of mind, a feeling, not a byproduct of a specific accomplishment. I was brought up thinking you had to accomplish to feel good to yourself. Today, I can feel good just for being, for getting up and, and knowing I have a wonderful husband, I have a good job, I have kids, I have very close friends, I have a good Al-Anon group, and the fellowship like you guys. So thank you very much. I owe my life and my love to you. Thank you.